This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox. I'm in for Carol Masser. Joining me now is Dave Wilson, Bloomberg stocks columnist and blogger at MLive Go on the Bloomberg. And Dave, if it were not for a couple of stocks, uh, perhaps uh, the healthcare industry, Humana, up a little bit more than three and a quarter percent, uh, United Health posting a gain of eight tenths of a percent, we'd see a lot of most of the rest of the stocks in the S&P 500 uh, are lower. I've noticed Constellation Brands, uh, the uh, the beer and wine and spirits maker, uh, up just a little bit, perhaps uh, not necessarily connected, but you could certainly use that today. Hanging on. For for dear life, that's sort of the story. Let's not forget there are 505 stocks in the S&P 500 because there are some companies represented by two classes of shares. Such as Alphabet, right? Parent, yeah, yep. parent company of Google, good example. 498 of them are down right now. It just goes to show you that, you know, it's all about the shares that are up. Like uh, Humana, as you mentioned, you've got this... Uh, uh, potential deal with Walmart, person familiar with the matter, saying, you know, the health insurers talk with Walmart about a possible merger and other options. You know, companies are working together already, uh, providing prescription drug coverage for Medicare patients, or plans anyway. So, you know, you've got that. And then the other side, you know, which uh, Charlie Pelt was just talking about with Intel, this stock is just getting Trash. Down uh, down eight and a half percent right now. Intel shares moving lower on news that Apple will be uh, perhaps uh, supplanting Intel as the maker of its own chips. Right. You know, at one point, uh, you had the potential for the stock to have its biggest drop since 2008. It's since sort of bounced off its low of the day. So you're now looking at uh, you know steepest decline in more than two years. Either way, I mean, you're talking about a company in the Dow Industrials and a company that really has struggled with the whole transition away from personal computers and towards smartphones and tablets. And so the idea that uh, Apple uh, is planning a move to its own chips from Intel's in, in Mac uh, computers, you can understand why it is the reaction would be the way it, it is. At least it's unfolding so far. We should point out it's all, according to people familiar with uh, Apple's plans, this uh, prospect of uh, making the chips in, or at least designing them in-house. I mean, you know, we know that Apple goes out to other companies to actually produce them. Right, maybe a um, fabulous model, right? A, a, right. a model uh, akin to what Qualcomm right. uh, pioneered. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Intel... Uh, I mean, they really need the business. I mean, given the, you know their focus on on uh, PCs and then you know beyond that, uh, perhaps some of the server computers and whatnot. But really, uh, this story is definitely making waves. Yes, and uh, a broad-based decline. Just taking a look at some of the other companies whose stocks are falling today. Delta Airlines down more than six percent. Alaska Air Group down six percent. There was a story about increased uh, jet fuel prices, perhaps um, putting a, a bit of a pressure on the airline operators, uh, just as they add capacity. 
capacity. Also looking at uh, some of the energy companies, Hess Corp uh, down 5.5%, Devon Energy also lower by 5.5%, Netflix a, a favorite among investors as well as viewers perhaps uh, down 5.5% as well. Yeah, and auto parts retail is another area with notable weakness. Uh, advanced auto parts down 6.7%, so one of the worst performers on the day in the S&P 500. Uh, AutoZone, Genuine Parts, O'Reilly Automotive, all lower by at least 4.5% as well. Well, let's bring in Joe Weisenthal. He is the uh, co-host of What You Miss on Bloomberg Television, 3.30 Wall Street Time. Joe, uh, the market <clears throat> action today belies what happened uh, from our March uh, ISM report, which yeah. was consistently stronger across all of the different categories. And also, we did get the February construction spending report. That was out earlier this morning. Uh, so, what, a gain of about uh, one-tenth uh, of a percent. Not a lot of uh, economic news, really, no. uh, on the horizon. I can get February factory orders. That'll be coming out on uh, on Wednesday. The data was solid this morning. Um, a little bit of cooling in the U.S. PMI, but not dramatically. Still at a very elevated level. Uh, ISM manufacturing down just a tad, but 59.3. That's a historically high reading. Uh, the price is paid index that jumped, and that probably you know that's the uh, amount that that reflects manufacturers having to pay more for raw materials. But I don't think that's that worrisome. Highest since 2011, but kind of to be expected with the rally we've seen. You know, commodity prices going higher, maybe some of the tariffs. But I don't think the sell-off was really like spurred by that or anything. I mean, in you know, so maybe. what are your contacts telling you? What's spurring the sell-off? I mean, because we saw the you know, big sell-off in bonds yeah. earlier in the morning, and then now we've got a rally, at least at the long end. Yeah. We're up 10, 30 seconds. The yield of 2.95% for the 30-year and 271 for the uh, 10-year. Well, it's interesting looking at tech because there's all these different stories uh, going on right now, whether it's Trump's tweets about Amazon, whether it's the Facebook stuff that they're still trying to dig out from, uh, whether it's trade and the effect that that has on some IP-related companies or chip companies. But it feels like all of those are just stories that we make up to uh, explain the fact that one of the hottest sectors in the world is finally cooling off. And I was looking at you know, a chart of NVIDIA and NVIDIA is uh, getting slammed in very similar matter and legs down like uh, Amazon. So it really feels like we're just seeing an example of people just dumping their winners, sitting on huge profits, and then maybe ex post facto coming up with a story to explain the decline. So but are you getting any reasoning for why we're ta why we're seeing this decline in stocks, why investors Not really. are shutting the market? I mean, market? look, people are going to say this stuff about trade. That's like the one you hear today. But it's like, come on. Is there anything really new about trade? I saw... Uh, China imposed tariffs on pistachios. I don't think that, you know... That's the 15%, right? The 25% tariff is on pork products exported to China. Yeah, I don't think that we're selling off... We're down four and a quarter percent for the year, and I'm just going to yeah. throw out the word taxes. And Dave Wilson, you and I were talking about it offline just earlier. I know it sounds ridiculous, but if you don't know what your tax bill is going to be and you have some gains, why not take them, pay the tax, and move on? It right. doesn't yeah. seem to be any uh, downside to that other than losing even more money if indeed you're looking for a bull market to save you. Yeah, and you do have to bear in mind that you know if you look over to Europe, a lot of markets over there close for Easter Monday. So you wonder if uh, mm -hmm. some 
uh, potential buyers are at least not around today. And, you know, put it all together and you see what, uh, even by recent standards, looks like a pretty extreme reaction in stocks. Indeed. Yeah, S&P 500 right now is down more than 3%. Dow is down 685 points. Uh, NASDAQ uh, down more than 3.25%. Our thanks to uh, Joe Weisenthal, uh, Wedgemis uh, co-host, uh, 3.30 Wall Street Time Only on Bloomberg Television, and Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks columnist. Come together. Yes, a come together when it comes to healthcare and retail. Walmart, Humana, will they come together? Here to tell us more is Brooke Sutherland, our mergers and acquisitions columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. You can follow Brooke on Twitter at BLSuth, S U T H. And also with us is Andrea. Harris, the senior healthcare analyst for Height Capital Markets, joining us from Washington, D.C. Uh, Andrea, let's begin with you. Walmart, Humana, why would they want to combine? Thank you for having me. Um, I think this actually, from the D.C. perspective, is the merger that makes the most sense of all of them. Um, Walmart has retail space, pharmacies, and Humana increasingly has um, also, PBM capabilities, primary care, and home health. A lot of the regulatory action on Medicare Advantage plans, which is Humana's primary business, is focused on increasing enrollment and capturing the senior population. And a partnership with Walmart, a, a increased partnership or potential acquisition with by Walmart would um, further enable their ability to grow this, this business line. Brooke Sutherland, your thoughts on this potential combination or acquisition or increased competitive uh, uh, venture that uh, maybe Humana and Walmart will strike? Sure. I mean, it sounds crazy to think about it, but, you know, as your other guest was saying, I do think there is some logic here. The other thing I've wondered is, could this be some sort of cash management strategy? You know, Walmart has multiple times attempted to acquire a bank. Um, there's obviously certain advantages to owning and insurers and the marketable securities potential that ownership potential that comes from that. So that could be sort of another caveat here. Can I just throw in the idea that maybe the caveat ought to be that a retail company buying a health insurance company is really venturing outside of what you might describe as a core competency? Or am I just like... So no, 20th not century, at all. My thinking. That, I mean, that is the big question for Walmart. Is this the right direction to be taking your business at a time when you're facing, you know, competition from Amazon? Their e-commerce business started out very strong once they bought Jet.com, and then since then they've sort of lost a step. And there's questions about whether they can maintain the pace of growth that they've seen there. There's competition heating up in the grocery market with companies potentially looking to get stronger in grocery delivery to counter Amazon's venture with the Whole Foods acquisition. So there are a number of different places that Walmart could put its dollars right now. Whether or not this is the best one, I think we'll have to wait and see. Okay, the reason that I raised it in this way is because another uh, story today has to do with General Electric divesting some of its healthcare information businesses. And at one time, GE looked to those businesses as the growth engine for uh, the company. Tell us about this particular uh, move. 
So it's interesting. GE is carving out some of its healthcare IT businesses. So these are electronic medical records, workforce management, uh, billing service software. Um, And they are selling these to a private equity firm for about a billion dollars in cash. They are keeping other aspects of their healthcare digital efforts. And a lot of the core of that business is, of course, MRI machines. Um, They're holding on to that. What's interesting to me is that this is so piecemeal versus, you know, there's been so much speculation of a bigger GE breakup. And instead, we're seeing these types of carve out deals, which I think could be a sign of maybe more to come. Andrea, uh, perhaps not just specifically on GE, but this idea that non-healthcare companies seem to believe that they can do healthcare better, cheaper, faster than companies that have been doing it for quite a long time. Do you agree? Well, I, I, I don't necessarily think that they're making that bet, but they're definitely trying to get at a bigger piece of a growing part of the economy, right? Healthcare absorbs 18% of our dollars. There's no reason to think that there there will be, um, that that's going to go down at any time soon. And with an aging population, if, if anything, there's a lot of growth opportunity. Um, Humana and Walmart, interestingly, already have a close relationship. Uh, Walmart and Humana market prescription drug plans together and draw a lot of, I think, seniors into the Walmart retail space um, through their prescription drug offering. Humana then converts those um, those Medicare prescription drug plan enrollees into customers in their broader Medicare Advantage market. So it's been a, a mutually beneficial relationship that I think they're just looking to try to heighten. Do you believe that there's any downside to a Humana-Walmart combination of some kind, Andrea? I haven't thought about the the negative aspects just yet. I've been spending a lot of time thinking about how much this makes sense. As more um, Americans age into Medicare, this is a a gross market. There will be fewer people enrolled in employer-sponsored plans. So companies that are heavily leveraged in Medicare Advantage um, and prescription drug plans like Humana really stand to benefit. Another interesting thing that Humana is doing or trying to do is in December they um, are they made announced a bid to acquire Kindred's home health um, service, which has a 65% overlap with their Medicare enrollees. This will help them control better control the healthcare outcomes of their enrollees and keep them out of high cost hospital settings. Uh, Brooke, is there a downside to any potential combination here? Because, you know, once you mention health care, you also have to remember that the government is a uh, big participant. And overnight, they can change not only reimbursement schedules, formulary schedules, as well as even the availability of certain types of health care services. Sure. And it really remains to be seen how the government is going to look at vertical integration going forward. Um, you know, previously, antitrust regulations regulators have focused on areas of specific overlap. And in those instances, they've either blocked the deal or pushed for divestitures. But most vertical deals have tended to get approved. Now, that's starting to change. We saw the government challenge AT&T's acquisition of Time Warner. That was a very clear case of vertical integration where there was no obvious overlap. So there are signs that the government is going to start taking a much harsher look at these deals and perhaps mimicking the regime that we see in Europe and in Asia, where they take a more holistic view of the market and how much control companies might have over supply chains or different customer distribution points. I want to thank you both very much uh, for joining me. Uh, Brooke Sutherland is our mergers and acquisitions columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. Read everything that she does at Bloomberg.com slash Gadfly and follow her on Twitter at BLSuth. 
B-L-S-U-T-H. And our thanks also to Andrea Harris, Senior Healthcare Analyst for Height Capital Markets, joining us from Washington, D.C. Shares of Humana, they are up 3.5%. Shares of Walmart, they are lower right now by 4%. Well, Mr. Postman, if you're not delivering packages from Amazon.com, who are you delivering packages from? Here to tell us more about Amazon and the U.S. Postal Service is Spencer Soper, technology and e-commerce reporter for Bloomberg News. And you can follow Spencer, and I recommend you do so, on Twitter at Spencer Soper. That's uh, S-O-P-E-R. All right, Spencer. Um, Amazon and uh, a variety of other technology stocks being hit today by the market sell-off, but Amazon having the distinction of being singled out by the president of the United States for taking advantage of the U.S. Postal Service. And I'm wondering if you could just offer up, based on your reporting in Seattle, what's been the reaction? Well, uh, the reaction on the stock, obviously, is down. Uh, It's been happening since last week, since there was news that Trump was, quote, obsessed with Amazon and finding ways to regulate it. And so he's honed in on a few different things, um, sales taxes being one, uh, you know, it's pressure on the overall retail environment being another. And lastly, and this is one that he really kind of sharpened his focus on today, is on the on the postal service. So uh, Amazon does have a, a relationship with the postal service. Probably about 40% of its volume goes through the postal service. Uh, what it does is it uh, sorts its packages by zip code and brings them directly to post offices where they where the, the final mile of delivery is handled. This is a good revenue source for the Postal Service. Um, the question I think what Trump is raising is could it be an even better revenue source from the Postal Service and what some analysts are wondering about. Um, it, it is a more favorable delivery mechanism from a from a fee standpoint than UPS or or FedEx and on, on many packages, which is why Amazon does this. The question is could could the USPS um, get a little more out of Amazon. Okay, but to be clear, um, over the weekend, the Associated Press reported that federal regulators reviewed the Amazon deal, the deal that it has with the USPS, and determined that the deal is profitable for the Postal Service. Yeah, it's profitable. Could be a little more, a little more profitable. And so they look at these things by in, in, in certain bucket, in certain buckets, you know. But as long as the postal service is legally mandated to deliver to every address, that's beneficial to Amazon as well. And there have been uh, there have been uh, uh, analyst reports that predict that uh, Amazon saves maybe a buck fifty per package um, by delivering it by delivering packages through the postal service as opposed to using UPS or FedEx. So there's still, you know, if, if if that number's good, a buck fifty per package, still might be a little more room for the for the postal service to be a little more aggressive in the rates that they charge, which is what some people are uh, speculating and, and concerned about. That would be significant. That could potentially be a significant cost to to Amazon in, in the billions of dollars if if they were faced with a with a fee hike from. From, uh, from the Postal Service. Now let's talk about, or have you talk about sales tax. Amazon, what, collects sales tax on its owned inventory in all the 45 states that have a state sales tax as well as Washington, D.C., correct? Yes, they do, but they do not collect uh, often the sales taxes on what are called marketplace sales. These are uh, independent merchants who put their inventory on Amazon. Amazon does not own that inventory. It's merely this marketplace, almost like an online 
uh, flea market landlord, and it takes a commission on each sale. But many of those sales, which account for about 50% of all the sales on Amazon, are not taxed. And so those types of sales, not just on Amazon, but on marketplaces in general, cost state and local governments the tune of like $13 billion a year. Uh, it, it's legally murky who's responsible. The Supreme Court's supposed to clarify this issue potentially uh, this summer. Um, but there, So there's a lot of eyes on that. But there's, uh, there's definitely, you know, potential more revenue uh, from sales taxes uh, going to to state and local governments through through the Amazon pipeline in, in the future. Okay. Now, if Amazon were to collect tax on behalf of those third-party sellers, wouldn't it make those products more expensive than the products that come directly from Amazon so that people would end up actually buying more directly from Amazon? I think you're thinking about it too much. Um, I, I I don't know that many people actually shop that way. Right now, it's just this void. And there's a, you know, Amazon, it, you know, has the legal position that it's not responsible for it, you know, collecting that tax and remitting it in all the states and things has costs. It's compliance cost that they're happy to not have as long as they have a legal justification not to have. Same with their merchants. They're, they're happy to not charge that tax as long as they can have a legal argument not to collect that tax. It, it's more a question of like whose responsibility is it going to be when they close this loophole. Is it going to be on Amazon, the marketplace owner, or will it be on the individual merchants on that basis? But I don't expect it to to change shopping habits that that much, like if you're ex- except for like the the real extreme penny pincher looking for for you know to save seven eight percent on on m- most purchases aren't that big maybe thirty forty dollars so it's it's not a huge amount for the consumer. All right, thanks very much for enlightening me. Uh, Spencer Soper is our technology and e-commerce reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us from our Seattle bureau, and you can follow Spencer on Twitter at Spencer Soper. Shares of Amazon, they are lower right now by more than 5.5%. This on a day when all major averages are lower. S&P 500 right now down more than 2.5%. The Dow is lower by more than 618 points. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Well, one stock uh, making a move today uh, is uh, the shares of Intel, lower by more than 8%. Uh, Apple planning to use its own chips in Mac computers beginning as early as 2020. Here to help us understand this uh, development is Mark German. He is our Bloomberg News technology reporter joining us from Los Angeles. All right, Mark German, why is Apple looking to build their own chips? What's wrong with the ones that are made by Intel? Yeah. Hey, Pim, and yes, uh, stop me if you've heard this before, but a few weeks ago we reported that Apple wanted to, is working on its own screens to replace Samsung and future iPhones. Now it's about getting another foreign component out of its devices. Intel, why do they want to do this? To answer your question, it gives them more control over their own roadmap. It allows them to work on new features farther in advance. They don't have to rely on Intel to add new functionality. Basically, this allows Apple to basically just do whatever it wants on the processor side, on the hardware and software integration side. So that's why this move makes sense for them. Okay. And would this be a move that is based on intellectual property as opposed to actually building a factory to make chips? This is this is an IP move. Apple has no plans right now to build a factory that we know of to manufacture their chips. 
if they did, it, it could make a good sense as a starting point to develop their own Mac chips in terms of producing them, given the Mac volume is far, 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 infinitely almost slimmer than iPhone chip volume. So maybe at some point they'll consider that. That's a good point, Tim. But what we believe right now is they'll work with manufacturing partners overseas uh, to produce their own custom chip designs. Okay, I was going to say that maybe this is a situation in which Apple will control the intellectual property, but could they then uh, contract with Intel to actually make the chips, or is Intel not interested? No, Intel is not part of this. This is going to be nearly identical uh, to the situation where they develop their own chips for uh, iPhones and iPads. So instead of just those devices, it'll be Macs now, too. And this would, what, make Apple the only major PC maker to use its own processors, correct? Right. That will make them a standout in terms of that. Other chip makers like Intel and AMD are, you know, all across Dell and Gateway and HP PCs, wherever you can get a PC that's on Apple. It's using a, uh, likely using an Intel processor because they have such high market share. Now, there, isn't Apple just quickly using a new software platform or working on a new software platform called, was it Marzipan? Yes, they are working on a new platform to allow users to run iPhone and iPad apps on Macs, and this is a, a stepping stone to eventually making both Macs and iPads and iPhones uh, working on basically the same wavelength, the same features, similar hardware, software, applications, basically taking everything that's important and making it the same no matter which device you're using. The, the end goal here is that Apple can sell you a Mac, can sell you an iPhone, an iPad, an Apple Watch, an Apple TV, an Apple whatever, and it all can run the same applications, work the same right. way. The only difference are the use cases and functionality. Thank you very much. Mark Gurman, our Bloomberg News technology reporter, reporting from Los Angeles. Shares of Apple, they are down about 1.5%. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. The drive to the close as investors shun stocks. The S&P 500 right now down two and a quarter percent. NASDAQ lower by two and a half percent. Here to help us understand what's going on is Eric Friedman. He is the chief investment officer for U.S. Bank Wealth Management, joining us from Raleigh, North Carolina. Eric, thank you very much for being with us. So when you get a call from the uh, client base or from the sales force and they ask you what is going on, what do you tell them other than people don't want to buy stocks? Yep, Tim. Thanks for having me on. It's it's something where there's really no individual, I'd say, catalyst to uh, to today's move. But really, I think the reasons that we we'd sort of point to would be number one, trade posturing, which is obviously you guys have done a great job of covering that today. The second would be more technically based. So we tend not to get clients to look at the 200-day moving average, but that has been a really key toggle point this year. And certainly the big news of today is that we actually went through it. It's interesting to see actually where we'll close today. We're only about nine handles away. Yeah, two, 20, I'll give you the number, right? Level. I'll give you the number, 2589, I believe, for the 200-day moving average, and we're at 2579. Yeah, so we're, you know, we're in a whisker, if you will, of that level. I think the key thing, Kim, is the fact that we went through it. This isn't the first time we've been through it. 
over the course of the year. Uh, again, uh, if you go back to, of course, the, you know, the, the February 9th day, we actually did trade through the 200-day during the day we actually closed above it. So in the next 10 minutes, if we actually close above the 200-day again, that would at least be short-term a little bit of a positive for the market. But it, it seems like, and again, uh, the, the consistent message has been technology, just concerns about, um, about the potential for regulation as well as this technical picture. Those are the things that on top of trade that have really driven markets today. Okay, so they seem like large, big-picture, macro trends. If you like stocks back in December, do you like them even more today because they're on sale? So you have to like them a little bit more today than you did in, in December. I think that the, the difference, uh, of course, now is, is a little more of a pronounced decision from the Fed to be perhaps a bit more active than we thought they would be back in December. So the only change, I think, you know, economic fundamentals in general are still positive. Pim, we look at a number of different indicators. We're seeing some weakness in parts of Europe as well as parts of Latin America, parts of China, but not enough to say, look, we're in a different regime than we were in December. So still momentum in terms of corporate earnings, still momentum in terms of more forward-leaning economic indicators. But the Fed, as well as this trade talk, we think is the new news, if you will. But Again, things are cheaper than they were in December. So, you know, we came into the year a little more bullish. We've scaled back. We actually had an investment committee meeting today where we talked about some of this price action being a little more interesting. So we're certainly seeing some opportunities pop up. Okay. And does that end up being a comparison between the yield, let's say you can get in the S&P, and let's say the yield on a two-year or even a one-year, a one-year now at 2.07%. Is that all that compelling? It is becoming more compelling. I think the other thing, Tim, is, is you look at some of the more interest rate sensitive sectors, whether it's things like real estate, utilities, telecom, consumer staples. Those are the areas that actually have seen a little bit of a rotation into, which would suggest that perhaps we're, we're finding, at least in those sectors, a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of stability. So, you know, there are a number of, of asset classes out there that, that become more attractive when rates start to kind of shallow out. Uh, again, and you guys covered it well this morning, we are, are really not seeing a, a complete shallowing out of the 210 spread. That's what we're really paying attention to. So I do think that as, uh, as this, this sell-off continues and should it really uh, exacerbate further, then some of the uh, the sectors that we actually have not seen leadership from could actually reverse themselves and become a bit more interesting. So those are things we're paying attention to. Also paying attention to emerging markets, which have had a really consistently higher beta, both on the upside as well as the downside. We've been more neutral on that space for some time, and it's something we are paying more attention to. Again, want to see the fundamentals get a little bit better. Um, but that's a space where, uh, again, maybe has been a little bit uh, unduly punished in this in this environment. So we're paying attention to that as well. You're holding anybody's hand to prevent them from selling at a time when it seems stocks, as you said earlier, are less expensive than they were in December. But when people see perhaps losses in those first quarter statements, they may be a little bit more inclined to actually sell because of behavioral response, emotional response, rather than using their heads. That behavioral function is one of the key things that we'll do for clients. It's almost like that personal trainer role that you find in your, your local gym that 
everybody knows that you should go and work out a couple times a week, but when you actually pay someone to do it for you and to keep you on track, it's a different, a different level of commitment. So that's something through communication, through conversations like this, we hope to keep clients obviously in the game. You know, it's a, you look at the S&P right now, Tim, you've got a, you know, a, a really a close to an oversold condition, not to say we couldn't go a little bit lower, but, you know, we've gone from uh, a relative strength index of about 73.74 in late January to about 36 as we speak right now. So that's, again, not a perfect indicator that we're, we're close to a bottom. But we do tell clients that, you know, when, when you sell things because you wish you sold them two weeks ago, it's really not usually a good decision to make. So that behavioral response that we try to train clients on is something that, um, that again, is, is a really important function that we serve. I want to thank you uh, for helping us drive to the close. Eric Friedman, Chief Investment Officer, U.S. Bank Wealth Management, based in Raleigh, North Carolina. You can follow them all on Twitter, at U.S. Bank. We drive to the close with the S&P 500 right now down 58 points. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Pim Fox, in for Carol Masser. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.